Welcome to ARBCAST, Water Island Capital's podcast series, where we strive to provide investors with concise and timely insights into the world of event-driven investing. I'm your host, Jennifer Bloodsworth, and joining us today is Portfolio Manager Curtis Watkins to talk about the opportunities for event-driven investing in the Biden administration. Curtis, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jen. Always great to talk to you. So, Curtis, before we jump into the episode, I just want to say a quick congratulations. We've just closed the books on 2020, and I'm looking at the performance of some of the funds that you work on. I see that our Water Island event-driven fund, AEDNX, was up 13.42% for the year, and our Water Island long-short fund, ATQIX, was up 43.45% for the year. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, It was certainly a challenging year, and we're really proud of all the work, all the hard work the team put in to, uh, to get the results that we did. So looking forward to carry that momentum into 2021. Terrific. Well, that's a great segue. What do you see as the opportunities for event-driven investing under Biden administration in 2021? Yeah, well, Jen, I would say that in the 10 years that I've been at Water Island, this is by far the most bullish or excited I've been about the event-driven landscape going into 2021. And it's really because of a a few events that happened in a really short period of time uh, here in 2020. You know, we have lived through a pandemic which really ground M&A volumes to an absolute halt throughout the year. And so I think that there's a big opportunity for just a rebound from some pent-up demand for M&A and event-driven and corporate catalysts in 2021. We had an election, and the election was a binary event in the market, you know, where the election really becomes about making sure people understand the parameters with which they're going to invest under and gives corporate boardrooms the transparency that they need to be able to process the decisions that they're going to enter into for corporate catalysts. And I think getting uh, moving past the election and now moving past the Georgia runoff gives the corporate boardroom the ability to make those decisions in 2021. So we have that sort of as a clearing event. And, you know, we have, we have two vaccines approved now, which really I think give us light at the end of the tunnel, help us to be able to see through to a new normal. And really all three of those events, happened in a very short period of time it was Q3 that the economy really started to reopen and we had the ability for some of that pent-up demand to start being released. We had the election in November and now we have approved vaccines here. And so that sets up, I think, for a very favorable environment for 2021. Great. Yeah, a lot of exciting things happening. And I know that you are particularly bullish on M&A, and so could you please tell us what about M&A is very attractive to you right now? Yeah, the first thing I mentioned, and it's pretty specific to how we view the world here at Water Island Capital, but I think that right now is probably the safest or most transparent period of time that we'll have to to invest in mergers and acquisitions. And that's really because of the pandemic that we just lived through. In the midst of the pandemic, we saw a number of acquirers who had announced transactions before COVID-19 try to walk away from those mergers. And what happened in the process of that is that we saw merger agreements really get tested. And by having to live through the volatility caused by that, having to see the legal outcomes of some of the challenges that happened to those merger agreements, what happened was the weak points of merger agreements were addressed. And we're now seeing new merger agreements post-pandemic that have rectified those weak points 
in merger agreements. So we now have the ability, having just lived through a very volatile period of time where we saw buyer's remorse and we saw buyers try to walk away from transactions, where we have, uh, I think, what are going to be, again, the most transparent corporate contract between a buyer and a seller, which will give us, I think, a lot more confidence in terms of underwriting any of the risks associated with the deals. And that, from a safety perspective, I think makes me uh, very constructive on the M&A outlook for 2021. The other thing, and it gets talked about a lot, but it's so important to what we do and in, in, in terms of the outlook that's always worth mentioning, and that's really private equity dry powder. Going into, you know, ahead of the lockdowns and uh, of the pandemic and COVID-19, private equity globally was sitting on a record amount of dry powder or cash available to invest of about $1.5 trillion. What happened because of the pandemic was zero private equity deals got done through the midst of lockdowns. And so actually private equity didn't put any of that money to work. And in fact, they actually raised another $250 billion of incremental capital. And so now we come into 2021 with probably something like $1.75 trillion in private equity dry powder. And you have to remember that that's equity capital. And typically private equity, you know, earns a return by putting uh, debt or leverage on transactions. So if you thought about a traditional private equity transaction that uses 30% equity, you know, that could be something worth like $5.8 trillion of M&A firepower. And to put that in context, total global M&A in 2019 on a dollar value basis was $2.8 trillion. So, we have multiples of M&A firepower just from private equity. And again, because private equity, you know, had to sit out a period of the, uh, during the pandemic, uh, I think that that creates a huge tailwind for 2021. The third catalyst here, I think, for a robust outlook for 2021, it's harder to quantify, but I think it's probably the most important factor. And, and that's really the acceleration of some of what I think were generational shifts or trends that were already underway that were pulled forward in the midst of the pandemic. And that's really around how our economy works. The digitization of the economy, work from home trends, uh, lowering our carbon footprint and being more environmentally responsible. All of those trends we saw were really pulled forward throughout the midst of the pandemic. And what that did was that created some haves and have nots. It created companies that were built for this new economy that already had oriented their corporate culture and the way that they do business around these generational shifts, and they've become extremely valuable. You know, Zoom is an example of a company that's become extremely valuable because of how they were built for this new economy. But on the flip side, you had companies that weren't prepared for this and had not invested or not had, had not been prepared for these shifts that were underway. And those are the companies that were disproportionately negatively impacted by the pandemic and those accelerations of those trends or shifts that were underway. And so when we go forward into 2021, what I think we'll see is I think that those companies that were disproportionately negatively impacted by the the pandemic, they're going to be forced to do mergers of necessity or find ways to orient a roadmap that gets them closer to this new digital economy, this new environmentally friendly economy that we live in. And so those factors, I think, all put together, again, um, really puts us in a, in a period of very interesting consolidation. Great. Thanks for that, Curtis. 
I know that you and the investment team have been together for a while and you've seen a variety of market environments. So I'm just curious, are you seeing any parallels to past market environments right now, or are there any legacies from 2020 that you see being carried over into the new year? Yeah, Jen, we have a really good precedent here in looking at the financial crisis from 08 and 09. And what we know from that is that M&A volumes tend to follow CEO confidence, and we also know that CEO confidence tends to be impacted by equity market valuation. We saw that in 08, 09, and what we have here coming out of 2020 is the correction, you know, in the equity markets was much shorter than what we saw back in 08 and 09. And what we also know already is that CEO confidence is already back to 2019 levels. So because of that, you know, I think we have a very good precedent here. And again, that gives us some pretty good confidence that what we're seeing with CEO confidence and what we're seeing with equity market valuations, that we're really setting up for a much more rapid recovery in M&A volumes than what we saw coming out of the financial crisis which, again, is what I think sets us up for a really robust 2021 in terms of uh, corporate catalyst. In terms of legacies from 2020, I think we can't talk about 2020 without talking about SPACs. SPACs have now become a huge part of the market. You know, I think there were something like 237 SPAC IPOs in 2020, over $80 billion of capital raised. And... I think we have something like over 200 of those IPOs, they didn't find their targets yet for M&A or who they're going to go acquire. So just the sheer amount of capital that was raised in the SPAC market means that we're going to have a lot of M&A as those blank check companies or those companies that have all that capital need to go and put that to work. And what that's done for us is, you know, the SPAC market's now really become just sort of another tool in our tool belt. It's interesting because the SPAC IPO market allows us to invest in these blank check companies with the potential to earn some yield on the cash that's just on the balance sheet or the cash that was raised in those IPOs with the optionality associated with the transactions that they may bring to market. And that second part, which is in the SPAC market called the de-SPAC process, which is when they find the target and they actually merge the SPAC or the blank check company with the normally private company to become public, that reminds us and looks a lot like the spin-off market and is evolving a lot like the spin-off market where, you know, there's sort of this period of time of digestion where you have the IPO investors who, who, again, may have just been there for the cash yield associated with the cash on the balance sheet of the SPAC, and they're really transitioning that shareholder base from those IPO investors to those investors that want to own that target company for the long run. And we have an opportunity there, both on the long and the short side, to uh, to look at all those transactions. And it just gives us a whole other set of companies for us to look at for profitable trading opportunities. So that SPAC market alone is going to take up a lot of time and a lot of uh, and create a lot of opportunity for us from an investing perspective in, in 2021 and, and probably beyond. Great. So when you think specifically about a Biden administration, how will a Biden administration affect event-driven investing? Yeah. So, you know, just in terms of how we think about this uh, from a regulatory or policy impact perspective, 
the way that we tend to uh, work through this is, you know, we feel like there's, from a sector perspective, there's, there's already themes and trends that are in place. And so it's really, what will the Biden administration uh, do to either be a tailwind or a headwind to that underlying theme that was already in place? And so when we sort of slice that all up, you know, the way that we come out on that is we're positive on consumer discretionary, industrials, and residential real estate. We're neutral on energies, financials, and tech. And, again, by being neutral, what we're saying is, you know, we think there's underlying themes already in place there around M&A and corporate catalysts. And so the Biden administration is neither a tailwind nor a headwind to that underlying theme that's already there. And then we come out a little bit negative on consumer staples, some segments of healthcare, and, and materials and telecom. Curtis, thanks for that overview. As you think about a change in administration, what are your thoughts on any changes to the regulatory process? Yeah, Jen, there's some nuance here to think about in terms of how the regulatory and policy agenda will get shaped into 2021 and beyond, and that's going to be impacted by the Georgia runoffs because the individuals that will lead these agencies are going to be appointed uh, or confirmed by Senate. They'll be appointed by the Biden administration, but then they have to go through a process to make sure that they're confirmed. And for a lot of the regulatory agencies that will impact M&A approvals or antitrust, those are sort of tier two nominees. So, you know, we've, you've seen things like, you know, Department of Defense, Department of Treasury, those nominations have already come out. And the way that that sort of calendar shapes is that it's unlikely that whoever is appointed will really have an opportunity to sort of shape regulatory policy probably until the second half of 2021. You know, even more specifically, uh, in this interim period, we have sort of a, an interesting dynamic at the FTC. The FTC is made up of five commissioners, and it's uh, headed by uh, Joe Simons, who's a Republican-appointed commissioner, the, the chair of that commission, and he'll step down and uh, as a part of the inauguration. And so we'll have an FTC that's actually sitting 2-2, two, two, two Democrats and two Republicans. And you cannot bring litigation at a 2-2 two, two tie. So, again, we have this sort of interesting little window right now at the FTC and some of the other agencies where some decisions may be a little bit harder to actually process. So that could be interesting just from a timing perspective. You know, now that we ha- we will have a Democratic-controlled Senate, I think the nominees that the Biden administration puts in place are going to be the most important swing factors. So we're going to sort of have to stay tuned there to see sort of how progressive some of the individuals are that are appointed there. Because I think now that we have that Senate majority with the Democrats, that could potentially you know, be a, an incremental headwind or something that we're just going to be mindful of in terms of the regulatory process as we move into 2021. Thanks, Curtis. I know that tech has been a hot topic for regulatory scrutiny lately. How do you think about that going into 2021? Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I think one of the big topics that came out of some of the fall antitrust conferences is actually funding levels for both the Department of Justice and the FTC, they uh, really have not had their budgets grown over the past 10 years. And so I think we will see that be an agenda item. And part of that is, you know, 
big tech is on everyone's radar right now. The DOJ is going after big tech. The SEC is going after big tech. But they don't really have the budget to go up against someone like a Facebook. So that could be another sort of interesting topic as we go into 2021. What I do think that that means, you know, again, we put tech in sort of that neutral bucket, and we can talk about some of the different pieces within tech. But I think, again, it's going to be very difficult to see big tech make acquisitions just because of the amount of regulatory scrutiny that they're under. You know, but what I do think is that we're going to continue to see the underlying theme of technology acquisitions. I think we'll see some of the larger, more mature software companies continue to go after next generation software. You know, tech has sort of led us in terms of overall M&A volumes over the past 10 years. I don't expect that to stop here as we as we move forward. I think it's really going to be big tech that's going to have a problem doing M&A, but I still think that that creates lots of opportunity for M&A, you know, for, for specifically the software space, uh, a real continuation of the trend that we've seen over the past 10 years. You know, other areas, since you brought up tech that I think, you know, are worth mentioning, you know, people often talk about bank mergers and bank M&A, and that's another place, you know, financials that we put into the sort of neutral category because, you know, bank M&A was already a theme primarily because of the regulatory burden that they had already been under, uh, low interest rates, and the pace of technology change that's happening there. Again, under a Biden administration, I would expect all of those sort of regulatory uh, headwinds that they may have been accommodating to only continue, if not get uh, heavier, which I think will only continue to spur more and more regional bank consolidation. Another place that sort of directly fits with this sort of acceleration of environmental uh, investing and uh, the green economy is I think it's going to impact the traditional energy space a lot. What we saw in 2020 was more mergers of equals or low premium stock-for-stock combinations within the energy space. And that's really because the energy space, I think, is looking for relevance in this sort of new world and uh, what people are focused on, the electrification of the economy. And those companies within the energy patch, they're trying to find relevance again for investors, and they're trying to find relevance on traditional investing metrics like profitability and cash flow. So, you know, I think over time, could we see actually some of the energy companies start to make some splashier acquisitions and try to move into that electrification theme over time? I think we could see that happen. I think it will probably be led out of Europe before we see it in the United States. But again, those themes that were underway, I think, are only accelerated under a Biden administration. And I think that that continues for us to just be continued consolidation in the energy space. All right, Curtis. Wow, certainly a lot to think about and a lot of different factors that you guys are looking at. So tell me, how do you and the team apply all of this to your investment process? Yeah, so the goal for us at Water Island is, you know, we focus on corporate catalysts. We focus on definitive mergers and acquisitions. We focus on spinoffs. We focus on rumored or speculated transactions. You know, the SPAC market now fits a lot of those themes all together. And our job is really to take all of those different corporate catalysts. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to find the lowest risk way uh, to create an absolute return. And we're doing that with a capital preservation mindset. 
And so the way that we build portfolios every day is we focus on uh, the opportunities that have the lowest risk but adequate return. A lot of times that happens to be in the definitive mergers and acquisition space. And we start to build our portfolios, and then we move out from there on the risk and return curve to be able to look at speculated or rumored transactions or things like spinoffs or things like the de-spacking process within the SPACs. And we really just keep moving out on that curve to find that best risk-reward opportunity uh, and build our portfolios around that, again, really with the mindset of capital preservation and absolute return, uh, low correlation to the overall markets. And so each and every day we come in and we look at that universe of opportunities, and we're constantly doing work around those to build and refresh the portfolio each, each and every day. And and 2020 was a really great example of that for us. You know, in, in 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, we saw merger arbitrage spreads widen to something like uh, 12% gross rate of return, uh, which was, you know, as high if not higher than we saw during the financial crisis. And we had the opportunity to really step into those mergers and acquisition transactions that we believed were still safe and mispriced and really put a lot of our capital work and our mind share to work there. And then as we came out of the pandemic and we've now seen the reopening of the economy and we've seen more spinoff announcements and more speculated and rumored transactions, it's allowed us now, again, to gravitate to places other than definitive mergers and acquisitions where we're seeing some really ripe opportunities. So, again, as we come into 2021, it'll be that same sort of game plan. We'll, we'll focus on the lowest risk situations, that have an adequate return for us, and then we'll keep looking for those places where we can add incremental value. And as I've outlined here, you know, I'm super excited about some of these opportunities for our uh, speculating or rumored transactions. I hope that uh, we have a lot of those opportunities to look at because of how uh, how constructive I am, am on this environment for 2021. Great. Well, Curtis, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts today. Again, I've been speaking with Portfolio Manager Curtis Watkins. For those listening who may not be familiar with Water Island Capital, we are an asset management firm with a proven 20-year track record in event-driven strategies across public mutual funds, private investment vehicles, and our recently launched ETF, allowing clients to choose the best format for their exposure. For more information on us or our funds, please visit our website, arbitragefunds.com, or call our resource desk at 800-560-8210.